Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, or showing all good, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So in 1999, the Puerto Rican singer Ricky Martin released a song called Living La Vida Loca. In English, this means living the crazy life. Like most Latin songs, it is a song that makes you want to get up and dance. Well, if you're not like me, if you actually can dance, it makes you want to get up and dance. The music is that of a happy song that uses percussion, horns, and guitars. But the words of the song, they are not so happy. It's a song about an irresistible wild woman who lives her life on the edge and seduces other people into her crazy life. It's a song really about debauchery, immoral behavior involving sex and drugs and alcohol. Throughout the song, Ricky Martin sings that this woman living the crazy life would lead him to a place where he was broken alone in a cheap hotel. That is indeed a crazy life. It might be fun for a while, but every single time it will lead you to the sadness of being broke and alone. In case you are wondering, God's desire for your life is not to live a crazy life that leads you to being sad and broken alone. That's not what God wants for you. God's desire for you is to live a good life. God's desire for you is a wonderful life. And the same thing was true for Titus and for the Christians on the island of Crete. We saw last week in Titus chapter 1 that there were some false teachers in the church in Crete whom Paul called insubordinate in verse 10. They rebelled against the gospel that faith alone, in Jesus alone, saves your soul from God's judgment. But these false teachers were not exactly living la vida loca. They were not living the openly rebellious life of the younger brother in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. You could say they were living la vida moca. They would rebel against God and the church's teaching. And then afterwards, they would go down to the fellowship hall and share a nice mocha with all the rest of the people in the church, saying, hey, we're one of you. 
we believe the same things, even though they were rebelling. They rebelled against God like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. They rebelled while they looked like respectable members of the family. We, however, do not want to live a life of rebellion. We want to live the wonderful life that God has planned for us. And so let's look at Titus chapter 2 today and see some ways that we also can live a wonderful life. First of all, you live a wonderful life by discipling other Christians. Paul ends Titus chapter 1 by saying that these rebellious false teachers in Crete are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He says this in chapter 1 and verse 16. But then Paul opens chapter 2 by saying to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he says, don't be rebellious, Titus. Don't be self-righteous with a long list of man-made rules that don't do anyone any good. No, teach sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. Sound doctrine is the lifeblood of the Christian faith. It is teaching that leads to spiritual and emotional health. It is teaching that will lead to a wonderful life. It is not surprising that Paul would tell Titus to teach sound doctrine. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples in his last words to them in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. So let's read out loud together what Jesus taught. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there is only one command in these verses. That command is to make disciples. Jesus says, you are my followers. Now I want you to make more followers of me. Teach people how to become my disciples. So we in the church then are to make disciples locally here in Maine, more followers of Jesus here, but we are also to make followers of Jesus globally from around the world, which is why we as a church support missions and missionaries and why we are talking about missions today after our service. So I hope that all of you will come next door to our fellowship hall after the service to learn more about our missionaries and how you can pray for them. Don't think, however, that the work of teaching and making disciples is only done in preaching and in formal teaching or in Bible studies. Your whole life is an opportunity for you to teach people about Jesus. That is what Paul tells Titus in verse 7. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Paul says to Titus, be an example for everyone of what a Christian looks like and acts like in every situation and in every place. 
Teach people by your words and your deeds and your example how to be a Christian. Titus and all of us as Christians need to teach, as verse 1 says, what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what agrees with healthy doctrine in how people live out their lives in practical ways at work and at home and in school. And who are we to teach? Who do we disciple? People at all ages and stages of life, according to verses 2 through 8. We need to disciple the old men and the young men, the old women and the young women. Well, just to be clear, we don't have any old women here at Hope Baptist Church. We only have seasoned women here, okay? You get what I'm saying, though? Everybody needs to be discipled. Jesus commands every Christian to make disciples, make more followers of Jesus. But you might say, how? How can I make disciples and how can I be a disciple? The picture that is chapter 2 is of older men and older women teaching the young folks how to become more like Jesus. The older men in the church, in verse 2, are to be dignified. They are to live lives that are worthy of respect. The respectable old men go and teach the young men how to be a Christian. And the young follow the direction of the more mature Christians as they watch their lives and listen to their teaching. Practically, what does this mean for you? If you are young, let's say somewhere under the age of 45, find someone who is older to disciple you. And if you are older, say someone north of 45, find someone that you can disciple. And if you don't consider yourself to be either old or young, if you feel like you're somewhere in the middle, then it's time for you to do both. You need to be discipled by someone else And you need to go and disciple someone else. So let me tell you about a man who discipled me in my younger years. His name was Don Ferris. I was in my early 20s when I was an intern at a church. And uh, Don, the youth pastor, was assigned to be my mentor. How did Don disciple me? Not just through teaching and through Bible studies, which certainly he taught and he brought me into Bible studies to help me to learn the scripture. He did that. But Don discipled me by letting me see his life, all of his life. He invited me into his home regularly where I could see his example with his wife and with his children as a young unmarried man who really did want to get married someday, it was good for me to observe Don's family and to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of family life. I learned from Don's example how a Christian husband and father was supposed to act. And as someone who spent a lot of time with Don, Don was able to speak words of encouragement into my life where I was following Jesus. And because I spent so much time with Don, Don also was able to speak words of rebuke into my life when I was not living like such a good Christian. Like the time 
when I decided that I would ride with my friend in the luggage van to a retreat that was four hours away, rather than riding with all of the people who were going on the retreat. So afterwards, Don told me that he was disappointed by my choice because he said, how can people see what a disciple looks like if you're not willing to spend any time with them? That was a good question for me to consider. And so that rebuke was helpful for me. As Titus 2 encourages you then to find a Don Ferris for your life and or to be a Don Ferris. And Titus 2 tells us that if we are going to make disciples of Jesus, we need to set an example. And the only way to set an example for other people is to open up your life to others, to let them see you, to rub elbows with you on every occasion. Finally, Titus Two tells us that if you are going to make disciples, you also need to teach the gospel. Teach that gospel that Christ died for our sins on the cross and then was raised from the dead on the third day. Sometimes you teach Bible studies, but other times you teach the gospel simply by speaking into someone's life in ordinary moments. You live a wonderful life by discipling other people. Secondly, you live a wonderful life by self-control. Did you notice how often Paul mentions self-control in Titus chapter 2? Apparently, self-control is a very important virtue for Christian living. In verse 2, Paul says, Older men are to be sober-minded dignified, and self-controlled. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children to be what? Self-controlled. And in verse 6, Paul writes, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The only people that Paul doesn't tell to be self-controlled are the older women. But even older women are not off the hook. If you look down to verse 12 of chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, we read there that we as Christians are to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Every Christian is to be self-controlled. So when Christians mature in their faith in Jesus... Fickleness, rash passion, and impulsiveness become things of the past for you. What does self-control look like for a Christian? It looks like being able to keep your emotions under control, rather than you being controlled by your emotions. So, if someone says something cruel to you, do you feel like saying something cruel back? Do you feel like perhaps punching that person in the nose? Yes, you do. That's what you feel like. But you don't do that as a Christian. Why not? Because through the Holy Spirit, your emotions do not control you. 
You control your emotions. And so when people hurt you, you forgive. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross? Did he curse the people around him? No. Jesus instead said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus acted with self-control. And we too are to be self-controlled people. Or think about this. When you are uh, working with Christians, you are discipling, and they fail in their ministries, and they don't seem to be growing in Christ at all, you are certainly allowed to feel disappointed by that. But do you know what you're not allowed to do? Give up. You can't quit as a disciple maker because you are living a self-controlled life. Or if some tragedy hits your life, you can certainly feel grief, you can feel sad, but what are you not allowed to do? Stop going to church. The self-controlled person perseveres in faith. They keep going even when it hurts to praise God. So let's look at some of the temptations that might face these various groups of people, the old men, the young men, the old women, and the young women. Let's look at some temptations that might cause Christians to lose self-control. For old men, Some of you have perhaps heard the movie called Grumpy Old Men. So what are men tempted to be? Grumpy when they get old, right? Old men are supposed to, according to verse 2, have endurance. They are supposed to be able to endure through difficult circumstances. But the temptation is to lose your self-control, to become grumpy. Grumpy about the state of your health or about the state of the world, or grumpy about having to do all these new things at your age. Why do I have to do that? Old men, though, according to Titus, should not be grumpy. They should be like Caleb in the Old Testament book of Joshua, who at 85 years old was willing to fight for his portion of the promised land. Caleb was not grumpy or whining. He was an old man, strong in his faith in his God. And so when the young men looked at Caleb, they said to themselves, I want to be like that guy if I get to be his age. And how are older women tempted to lose self-control? Verse 3 says that they should not be slanderers. Now, it's easy for an older woman to look down on the younger women. They would say, well, she's not the Christian I was when I was her age. She's not the wife or mother she's supposed to be. She doesn't serve well in the church like I did back in the day. Why, back in my younger days, blah, 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 blah. Self-controlled older women do not use their words to slander. They use their words to build up the younger women, to give them hope, to give them encouragement. What about younger women and self-control? Verse 5 says they are to be working at home. 
Now, please do not misunderstand what Paul is saying to Titus here. He is not saying that women cannot work outside the home. That's not what he's saying. If you read Proverbs 31, which you might have in your years about the exceptional wife, the exceptional woman, did she work outside the home? All the time. She was busy outside the home helping the family with their financial needs. She was a godly woman who did work outside the home. But Paul says that a young woman, a young mother, a young wife, should work very hard to make home life a blessing. When the husband comes home, he should feel blessed to be there. Why? Because his wife has worked hard to create a nice environment at home. Now, these days, a woman who does not have a career can be made to feel like a nobody in our culture. Isn't that true? Uh, Wives who are not working outside the home can be made to feel like they are of no value in our culture and society. But here's my question. Are women who are working at home, taking care of their families, are they nobodies? Really? That's not what God thinks. And the self-controlled young woman will not think that way either. She will not think that way about herself. Because God thinks that Christian homemakers are his treasured possession. His very people whom he has redeemed and purified as his beautiful bride. Well, what about young men and self-control? Believe it or not, at one time in my life, I actually was a young man. So I know something about what young men are tempted by. The temptations that young men face with regard to self-control usually involve some kind of lust, ambition, and impatience. Young Christian men are to treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. They are not to treat young women as objects to use. And young men are to be patient Even though they are ambitious to do many great things with their lives, they need to be able to be patient to wait until God has matured their character so that God can at that moment use them for his glory. Young men are are not so patient, but they need to grow in patience. They need to be self-controlled and not to be so ambitious that they push people out of the way. So, let me ask you, is a self-controlled life a counter-cultural life? It certainly was in Crete, where we read last week in chapter 1 and verse 12 that the people of Crete were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Cretans did not control their speech, their emotions, or their appetites. And would you say that is often true in American life today? That we don't do those things either. We too are like Cretans. But to live a self-controlled life is beautiful. It attracts people to Jesus when they see someone who is able to live a life of self-control. It makes people wonder, 
Where does the power come from to live such a self-controlled life? This is a wonderful life. It honors God in a culture where people find it hard, if not impossible, to live a life of self-control. Finally, you live a wonderful life by submission. Now, twice in Titus chapter 2, Paul tells people in the church to submit. In verse 5, Paul writes that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. And in verse 9, we read that bondservants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. Now, at this point, some of you have mentally checked out of the sermon or you're getting a rock ready to fire, okay? So I'll be ready to duck when you fire it. But let's talk a little bit about submission. Some of you, perhaps, are thinking that you might like to go all Thomas Jefferson on your Bible. What did Thomas Jefferson do with his Bible? I brought a picture with me today of of his Bible, okay? And you can see that Thomas Jefferson was really good at using scissors, He didn't have a computer in his debt and paste. But what Thomas Jefferson would do is he would cut out in the Gospels anything that had to do with a miracle or the supernatural. He would say, I don't like that. I don't think anything supernatural ever happens. And so he took the miracles of Jesus and he cut them out. He said, that's not going to be part of my Bible. Thomas Jefferson loved the teaching of Jesus but he hated the idea of Jesus doing anything supernatural or miraculous. And so uh, he had a lot of holes in his Bible. And today we have people also who put holes in their Bible. They don't like any teaching about submission. And I suspect that 200 years from now, people will be cutting other parts out of their Bible that they won't like 200 years from now. So people always cut stuff out of their Bibles. So let's think about, though, what submission means, what it looks like. In marriage, submission for a wife means living in line with a husband's loving leadership. Submission, then, means a wife voluntarily giving up her rights to her husband. It is not something that a husband can demand of his wife. In Ephesians 5, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? Well, you look at the cross and you find the answer. Jesus laid down his life for the church. He sacrificed everything for the good of his bride, the church. And how does a Christian wife respond to her husband's Christ-like love? She submits to and respects his loving leadership. And she does not do this begrudgingly. We read in verse 4 that older women in the church are to teach the young women to love their husbands and their children. So wives are not begrudging in letting their husbands lead as Christ leads the church. Now, because this teaching on submission in the Bible has been abused by some men over the years, let me say a few words about what submission is not. Submission does not mean that husbands have a license to suppress or oppress their wives. It certainly does not mean that husbands can physically abuse their wives. 
Can you imagine Jesus hitting his bride? I can't either. Hitting your wife is evil. It is wrong. Physical and sexual and emotional abuse of wives is just wrong. A wife should also not be silent if her husband compromises the care, the nurture, or the protection of her children. Submission does not mean watching your children get abused and have their lives destroyed. Nor does submission mean that all women are to submit to all men. A Christian wife is called to submit herself to one man, and who is that man? Her husband. She is not to submit to all men, just the one man that God has given her in her husband. And submission does not mean that women are inferior to men. Men and women were created equal in the image of God, according to Genesis 1. Men and women, though, are different in the way that God has made them, and so they have different roles within the marriage. Finally, submission does not mean that a wife should follow her husband's lead if the husband encourages her to sin in some way. A Christian wife's first loyalty is always to who? God. God comes first, and then the husband is under God, right? And so a Christian wife is never to follow her husband into sin. But if a wife submits to her husband's Christ-like love and leadership, what will be the result in our society? Verse 5 says that the word of God will not be reviled. People won't hate it. People won't speak against it. When people see Christian husbands and wives loving each other, not fighting each other and battling each other and hating each other like so many husbands and wives do today, that is countercultural. Love and respect between a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that will attract more people to the gospel which teaches us that Jesus loves his bride. How are they going to know that? Because Christians are people who love their wives, who love their husbands. As we live that way, the gospel becomes beautiful. Now let's talk about submission among slaves. Depending on the historians that you read, it appears that between one-fifth and one-third of the population of the Roman Empire, they were all slaves. Titus then needed to give practical teaching to slaves about how were they to live as Christians. Thank God there are not so many slaves today. But there were a lot of slaves in Paul's day. And how could these slaves be good Christians? In two positive ways and in two negative ways. Positively, slaves were to be well-pleasing to their masters, according to verse 9. They were to be attractive in their character, not hostile. They also were to show all good faith, according to verse 10. They were to be faithful in their work ethic and to honor authority. 
Also negatively, slaves were not to be pilfering, according to verse 10. They were not to steal or skim off the top from their masters. In all these ways, slaves are to live counterculturally. And in the same way today, all employees who actually are getting paid for their work, they are to be properly respectful to their bosses. Don't be a rebel at work. Christians rather submit at work because that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior, according to verse 10. Submission at work makes Christianity beautiful. So what does a wonderful life look like? It looks like becoming more like Jesus yourself and then discipling other people to look more like Jesus as well. There is nothing and no one more wonderful than Jesus. We want to look like him. And we want others to know him and to look like him also. So be a disciple of Jesus and be a disciple maker for Jesus. A large part of discipleship involves being self-controlled and submissive to those in authority. Such a life is countercultural today, but it is a beautiful life. People may not like it when Christians talk about self-control and submission. You may not have liked it today, but you find it attractive when Christians actually live this way. This is because the gospel is a wonderful life. It is a beautiful way to help the watching world be attracted to Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful today that you have called us to live not a miserable life, but a wonderful life. This wonderful life, though, cuts against the grain of what our culture teaches. It is a completely countercultural life. And so I pray for these, your people, that they might be able to follow in your ways, to obey you, and to have the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly, self-controlled life. Thank you, O God, for the power you have given us in your spirit to live such a wonderful life. In your name we pray, amen.